0: Many years ago, readers of The Advocate, along about August or shortly thereafter, would always read of the report of the meeting at High Texas, and uh, invariably, there would be a report of the closing night of the High Texas fraternal gathering. And it was that Brother J.O. Tanner closed the meeting, entitling his talk the Seven Pillars of Wisdom's House. I don't know how he did it because I've tried to lecture on this a number of times and I've never gotten past the third one without running out of time and having to hop, skip, and jump through the rest of him. Well, I'm sure you recognize that the title which was announced for tonight would be just as involved and it would be impossible for me to totally cover the beliefs of the Christadelphians. But what I have in mind tonight... It's to seek to show that the type of reasoning which the Christadelphians have is sound and that it corresponds to the reasoning of the early ecclesias. Now, when we say, why I believe like a Christadelphian, perhaps the question comes to mind, well, I thought you were a Christadelphian. Yes, I am a Christadelphian, but... The thinking behind this subject goes deeper than this. What is a brother of Christ? Which is what this term means. It occurs in Colossians 1 and verse 2 and translated brethren in Christ. I'm sure we all are familiar with the episode which took place in the uh, 15th chapter of Matthew. Where someone said to Jesus, Thy mother and thy brethren await outside to speak with thee. Not meaning to do any disservice to his mother, he took the opportunity to teach a valuable lesson concerning these terms. And he said, He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my Father, rather my Mother, and my brethren. Well, let's look again at the text which was read in our hearing at what he says. Verse 16, we read, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man do his will, and uh, he had said in Matthew that he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and my mother, and etc.' So we cannot possibly do the will of our Father and be a brother of Christ, except we know the doctrine, as he says here in the 7th chapter of John, and verse 17. Now, those of you who have known me for some time know that I usually speak on fundamental subjects, and this is sometimes a source of a little bit of ribbing. As a matter of fact, one brother will recall that he ribbed me a little bit this evening about, being, uh, about speaking again on a fundamental subject. Well, I'd like to say something about the fundamentals as well as my manner of speaking, which uh, I know a number of other brethren who do the same. Now, speaking of the method whereby a false doctrine is mentioned and seeking to show it in error, showing the truth of the matter. This is not entirely unscriptural because if we will turn to the first, book, first chapter of the book of the Galatians, we find there where the apostle Paul did exactly this thing and he says I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another and he says that there be those that would pervert the gospel of Christ and he says whosoever teaches another gospel other than what they had received from him let them be accursed he didn't draw back from calling attention to false teachings In uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses 15 through 17, he mentions that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed of his work, rightly dividing the word of truth. And he goes immediately into a couple of uh, former believers who were teaching a false doctrine. And he says that their names were Hymenas and Philetus, and that they were teaching that the resurrection was fast. So they did not shun to uh, call attention to the fact that there were false doctrines in the world. As a matter of fact, I believe that it's important that we educate our children to the fact that our teachings are not the only teachings current in the world. If we do not, when they chance to come up on playmates, Or their schoolmates as they grow older and we have only taught them the positive side of the question suddenly they find out there's another side of the question and they don't know how to cope with it and how to refute it already my children are coming to me speaking of their playmates and their schoolmates and the difference in doctrine well i feel like if we call attention to both sides of it then we have them thoroughly furnished and to good works, and their faith is not shaken then when they come on to these supposedly strong points that they find. The, The Bible begins with the concept of God, which is incidentally a very important principle. We say it is important because Jesus placed eternal life contingent upon a correct belief of the concept of God. We see this when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying to his Father as recorded in the 17th chapter of John. And in verse 3 he said, And this is eternal life. Notice how important it is if we would deem eternal life to be important. It is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou, God, hast sent. Now, if we look at this episode with the idea in our mind that uh, this was a second part of a triune God kneeling there, speaking to another part of a triune God, it is very difficult to understand his words. How could one say to the other, Thou art the only true God, where if, in fact, he himself was also as much God as the one he was talking to and aside from that there was yet another one God the Holy Spirit the term Trinity is not in the scriptures and this claim is held on a very thin thread of evidence so called as I said the Bible starts out with this concept in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth Trinitarians upon the word God here because it comes from the plural noun Elohim. Notice I said a plural noun. Yet Christadelphians say that God is comprised of one individual. How then can we understand that the scriptures say that Elohim, a plurality, created the heaven and the earth? It may be surprising to many to know that many honest Deny that this term Elohim denotes more than one individual in the Godhead, although some others will seize upon it as proof that there are more than one individual comprising God. Fair Baron's Bible Encyclopedia is one of the best, and I wish I had brought uh, this volume along. I could probably do better justice to what he said. If I was reading it to you, but I believe I can uh, remember fairly accurately how he defines this term Elohim. He says that it denotes the infinite greatness and wisdom, the multitudinous aspects or attributes of the one true God. And he admits that many Trinitarians seize upon this word to seek to prove the Trinity, but he said the word in itself does not prove any such thing. Now, under the word Trinity, Fairbairn will tell you that there is such a concept in the Godhead, but he was honest enough to uh, admit that the term Elohim does not teach it, that it simply calls attention to the many attributes that God has. Now, the children of Israel, when they were brought out of Egypt, and they were in the wilderness going toward their own land. God called their attention to the fact that he would not be worshipped as a plurality. Therefore, Harmony tells us that uh, the first verse in the Bible could not contradict what he told the Israelites in the uh, fifth chapter of Deuteronomy, rather the sixth chapter in verse 5. There he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. So here we can understand that whatever God is, and that's Elohim as well, it's comprised by one being because Yahweh is a singular noun. It's the memorial name which he gave Moses at the burning bush. Now, returning to uh, the concept of Elohim, it's uh, very interesting that I lectured on this subject at uh, Rockford about four years ago, and Brother Alex K. was present. We talked afterward, and he said, You know, it's interesting that uh, you came up with this uh, concept because I talked, he said, to a Jewish rabbi, and he said that there was no other word that could properly describe the God of Israel because he has so many attributes, whereas the gods of the heathen around them They had a God for everything. They had a God for fire, but uh, that was all he was, a God of fire. A certain attribute was ascribed to him. And on around, different nations had different gods so-called, and they attributed different attributes and uh, powers to them. But God, by using this term, which called attention to his multitudinous attributes, in himself, him only, This would tell the Israelites that what the heathen around you take many gods to comprise, you have one individual that is more powerful and has more attributes than all of them put together. Let's turn, if you will, to the 45th chapter of uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Here we get an oft-repeated phrase because God seems to be trying to get a definite message and using the method of repetition to Israel across to them that they should not expect to find a multiplicity of God's having power over them. Well, I believe I I went a little too far along. Let's uh, look in the 43rd chapter first and begin with verse 10. God says to Israel, "'Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord.' and my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I want you to notice the repetition of the singular pronouns here. The Bible has the most correct language that I have ever seen. Now, if there was more than one individual if there were more than one individual involved here the plural pronouns we and us would be necessary but you never find that you find the singular so god says i am he before me was no god formed neither shall there be after me I even I have am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have shown when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith saith the Lord, that I not we, but I am God. This continues on and on, and we're going to look at a little more of it, but I'd like to call attention to something here that most of us who are in the business world, and I'm sure uh, just about all of the males here are, and, and uh, perhaps some of the sisters. We have a uh, sort of business uh, organization in the world today, and it's called a corporation. It requires three or more individuals. It's just coincidental that three is the number that it takes because this doesn't teach the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's a wonder that the Trinitarians haven't grabbed hold of it because they need proof so badly. But it takes three or more to be a corporation. Now, if three individuals formed a corporation and they were talking to a client or a supplier, and uh, the one individual speaking to this supplier said, I am Acme Lumber Company, if this were the, the organization formed, he would be stating a half-truth, or a, which leaves quite a bit of it untruthed. Because there, in fact, would be two other members forming this corporation, or possibly more. To use proper uh, terminology, he would have to say, "We, this gentleman, and this gentleman, and myself, we form, we comprise, Acme Lumber Company." Properly using the plural term, but you never find that in Scripture. The singular term is always employed. Verse 12 says, I have declared and have saved, and I have shown when there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Therefore, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, and who shall hinder it? In your leisure, if you will take the 44th chapter in verse 6. Verse 8, I'm going to read you verse 24 because it's very important. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he who formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord who maketh all things, who stretcheth forth the heavens alone, who spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Doesn't sound like a trinity of persons did it. And it seems certain to me that when we read Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, that he's speaking of the far distant past when the universe was created. And here he says he did it alone, though it's certain in later dispensations that he has used angels to carry on his work. But here he says, I spread abroad the earth by myself. What was the apostolic concept of God? Was it any different than that which we have found in the Old Testament? Or that Jesus manifested when he said in the garden that uh, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent? This showed that Jesus was in perfect harmony with the Old Testament concept that there was only one individual comprising what they knew as God. What about the apostles? Well, we have this in the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where the apostle Paul says, speaking of the world around them and uh, superstitious paganism, he says, uh, to them there are Lord's many and God's many. They also had a God for just about anything that you could imagine. But he says in uh, verse 6, But to us, that is, who was he writing to? Well, look back at the first of the book, and you will find that he was writing to the ecclesia, which was at Corinth. But to us, he says, who know the truth, who told the truth of God, in contrast to those who have God's many and Lord's many, there is one God, and he tells us who the one God is. To us there is but one God, the Father, he calls him. Then he says, of, him, uh, of whom are all things, and we in him. Then in addition to that, he says, And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Well, the Trinitarian says, But... How about this phrase, Lord? It's in the Old Testament, and uh, this proves that God has that Jesus has been a part of this Godhead because he's the Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, how did he get to be Lord? If you look in your leisure at the, the second chapter of Acts, in verse 36, the apostles tell Israel, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God hath made to be both Lord and jesus and savior rather so he was made to be lord he was given this name by god his father now in ephesians the fourth chapter the text for the subject that my grandfather used to use the seven pillars of wisdom's house we have this same truth set forth there are seven of those pillars which are mentioned he says there is one body And one Spirit, even as ye are called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, now we come to Jesus already in uh, the fourth precept, yet we don't get to God until we get down to the Father, that is, until we get to the seventh precept. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Then finally, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. So we see that the New Testament concept is in perfect harmony with that of the Old Testament, believing only in the one God of Israel, the very concept which Christadelphians hold to this very day. And I submit that our reasoning must be in perfect harmony with the reasoning of the Old Testament uh, believers, who we find enumerated in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, and were told that they were faithful and would inherit the kingdom, and they all believed in one God. The very Son of God, who said, The words which I speak are not mine, but his that sent me, therefore he would know the truth if anyone does, said, Father, it's eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Well, now what about Jesus Christ? When did he come upon the scene? Certain we are all familiar with the passage of Scripture to which the theologian would go to show us that Jesus Christ was back there in the beginning, and reasoning upon that, that He must be God because it says here in John the Gospel according to John that He was God. We read here: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. You can read on down at your leisure. In verse 14, you will find, as you know it is there anyway, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, etc. How then can we understand that in the beginning was the Word, and yet read in verse 14 that Christ was that Word become flesh? To the theologian, this says, In the beginning Christ was there right along with God, and that he was God, being a part of the Trinity. But that is the farthest thing from what the Apostle John is telling us here. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. What does he mean? The Greek term logos from which the word word is taken, incidentally is translated word a number of times, but it is translated in other ways as well. In Hebrews 6 and 1, it is translated doctrine where Paul says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, do you see any problem with in the beginning there was the doctrine that we believe today that they believed in the old testament era no i find no trouble with that whatsoever i believe the doctrine was there and i believe when he told the seed of the serpent that i will put enmity between thee and the woman and between her seed and thy seed and he shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel that Christ was preached there, that the truth concerning him was uttered. And incidentally, this word Logos is translated both preaching and utterance. In uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish, but to us who are saved it is eternal life. So in the beginning there was preaching, as we know it now, the hope of redemption was certainly given there in the Garden of Eden, and so therefore Logos was in the beginning, because that word translated preaching there is Logos. In Second Corinthians 8 and 7, verse 6, in verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you abound in a number of things, and among those was utterance. That word utterance there comes from Logos and it's interesting that under the uh, early part of the book of John, the gospel according to John the Schofield who was a Trinitarian said that uh, this word Logos is uh, peculiarly uh, fallacious and uh, he says that it primarily means, uh, let's see if I can very quickly, a thought or a concept this is the primary meaning now he says the, second con- the secondary concept of it is the utterance. Notice the word that he uses. And it's, it's in perfect harmony with the teaching of the, uh, the Greek word. The utterance of that thought or concept. Well, I see no problem with that concerning the word being in the beginning, because I believe in the beginning when God uttered the truth to the first human pair, the Logos was there again there's no problem it is also translated tidings in uh, Acts 11 and 22 when the uh, news reached the church which was at Jerusalem or the Ecclesia concerning the uh, salvation which had been carried by Peter to the house of Cornelius it says when the tidings of these things reached the church which was at Jerusalem they rejoiced and so forth well, tidings there comes from Logos and I believe that it was tidings and very good tidings to Adam and Eve when they were told that there would be a seed of the woman who would work out a plan of redemption and in whom they might be saved from the penalty that was inflicted upon man as a result of that sin that took place in the Garden of Eden. Finally, there are others but I will let it suffice with this last one. Intent is the translation of this word in uh, Acts, the 10th chapter, and verse 29. Do you recall when, uh, when Cornelius was told to send for Simon? He said, I mean, let me get this right. I'm about to misquote it. He said, I came as soon as I was sent for. Tell me, therefore, with what intent have you sent for me? Well, don't we believe that God had intentions back in the Garden of Eden when he uttered these truths, gave this promise which was tidings to Adam and Eve? Yes, in the beginning was the Logos, and they all pointed forward to Christ. The Lamb which was slain so that the skin, the covering, might be taken was representative of Christ, and there was Logos. All through the Mosaic law, there was Logos, because everything that was done there— pointed forward to something in Christ. And this is why that Jesus could say to the Jews in the 8th chapter of John that Abraham saw my day and was glad because the day, of Abra- uh, the day of Jesus was not, it is not taught in the scriptures to be concurrent with the day of Abraham. And I'm speaking of Abraham in his mortal walk. What is the day of Christ? Well, turn with me to the... Uh, Second epistle to the Thessalonians and the second chapter. Here we're told by the Apostle Paul that that day, what day? Well, the day of the Lord, would uh, not come except there come a falling away first. That's verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a falling away first first now what day well, look in the previous verse and we'll find out be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord is present now this is the new uh, Schofield rendering and uh, yours will read the day of Christ is present or at hand all right, the day of Christ that is in view here is future. If it's at hand, it is not past by several hundred years so that Abraham could look in his time and see uh, Christ and say, well, this is the day of Christ, and I'm really glad about it. Now, there's a tie in here with the 11th chapter of Hebrews where it says that Abraham and all of those other ancient worthies died in faith, not having received the promises, but notice the phraseology, but saw them afar off. Well, didn't Jesus tell the Pharisees in John 8, Abraham saw my day and he was glad? Well, this shows that it was afar off in the future. Let's look at Philippians, the first chapter. Again, we get the terminology, the day of Christ. Was it first, future, or past? In verse 6, Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it, will perform it until the day of Christ. So it was future. This is the day that Abraham saw. This is what made him glad, seeing the future day. So the day of Christ is what we are looking for. Look at verse 10. Got this down because we're not going to read it. I'm going back to John one, then uh, chapter two and verse uh, sixteen. All right, back dealing again. Within the beginning was the word. There's a further problem here that we need to resolve because it says the word was with God and the word was God. You recall a few moments ago we quoted from uh, some of the places that are translated in different ways. One of those was from 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, and verse 7, where utterance was said to be logos. Well, utterance there was said to be one of the attributes for which he was commending this ecclesia at Corinth. So Uttering the truth was one of their attributes. Can we say of God that one of their, his attributes is not utterance and preaching as well since he did give these promise, promises and no promise has ever been given but what it came from him as a continuation of what he began in the beginning. Well, if utterance is an attribute of the ecclesia at Corinth, it certainly is an attribute of, of God. If utterance also is can said to be with him and be him in the beginning. Well, it poses no problem for me, certainly, if, ut- if utterance can be said to be one of the attributes of God. We have in First uh, John, I believe it's the fourth chapter, love is said to be one of the attributes of God. And their love is spoken of as though it was God himself. I believe it's verse 12. I, I'm not certain, but it, that will be very close. He says, He that loveth not, loveth not God, because God is love. Well, certainly we don't understand by this that love is the God that created the heaven and earth. This is one of the attributes which he has. Therefore, if God is love, then love is God. How Why is there a problem then saying that Logos there is God or utterance or whatever? If love can be so closely associated to God that it can be spoken as it were him himself, well, what about his promises, his very word? Now, in the 34th chapter of Exodus, Moses told the angel, of course, who was appearing to him, that when you made promise to Abraham, you swore by your own holy name. And this was a representative of God. And it was Yahweh who made the promises, of course, through his angel. And he says, you swore by your own self. Later the apostle Paul says, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by his own self. So the promises which God made were sworn upon his holy name, and they are so closely associated with him himself that certainly they can be said to be God if love can be said to be God or if God can be said to be love. Well, this God that we have been talking so much about tonight had a definite plan in mind when he created the heaven and the earth. Of the earth, he says in the 45th chapter of Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord. Notice that singular noun, pronoun again. I am the Lord who formed the earth and made it. And then it says, it changed to the third person. It says, he hath established it. And he says, I created it not in vain. And I created it, or I formed it to be inhabited. This is what we're doing here. When God placed the first human pair in the Garden of Eden, we find that he told them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Well, it wasn't too many years until men started going astray from God. And by the time of Noah, they had become so wicked that God was tired of wrestling with them, so to speak. And so he told Noah he was going to wipe the slate clean. He was going to start out with new stock, using Noah. In the first verse of the ninth chapter of Genesis, he told Noah exactly the same thing, showing that he had not changed his mind one bit. His plan was still that which he declared in Isaiah 45 and 18, that is to have this earth populated. Because he said again to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, God declared, as I just quoted from Isaiah 45 and 18, that his specific purpose in forming the earth was that it would have inhabitants upon it. Well, in contrast to this, what does he say in the 55th chapter of Isaiah? He says, as the rain and the snow comes down from heaven... And it does not return feather, that is, it doesn't rain and turn around and go right back, nor does it snow and turn around and go back. He says, my word is like that. He says, so is my word that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I have sent it. Well, he declared that he formed the earth to be inhabited. And if the earth is not always to be inhabited, if it uh, is treated as earth would have it, and after the earth disintegrated, as we are told that it is destined to do by theologians, if there was anyone left anywhere to look back and reflect upon what they saw, which would be nothing, they might recall that passage that God said that he formed the earth to be inhabited, and he didn't do it in vain. And he later claimed, we would have to put heavy emphasis on this word claim if we take the view of the theologian, showing again that those views are held by a thin thread of evidence. It's like a house built up on the sand, and if you pour water around it, it will, the sand will leave. And incidentally, water is an apt term because we find in the seventh chapter of John that it represents the spirit. And the spirit we find from 1 John 5 and verse 6 is the truth. So the truth will do away with these sandcastles. But if we look back upon a burned cinder of an earth and recall that God said He formed it to be inhabited, and there came a time when it was nothing but a burned cinder. We would have to doubt. As a matter of fact, we would have firm evidence that we could place no confidence in the claim that what he said and came forth out of his mouth would not return unto him void because we could look around us and see grave evidence that his word did return to him void. And I think this should be a very sobering fact to theologians who hold doctrines which do disannul the harmony and the certainty of the word of God because God made promise to Abraham that he was going to do something concerning him and his seed and it had an everlasting aspect which was attached to it this is again as in perfect harmony with his stated purpose to have the earth inhabited now Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 and 4 testified that one generation comes and another passes away. We see this constantly. As one generation gets older and starts uh, falling asleep in death, a younger generation replaces it. But he said, One generation cometh and another passeth away, but the earth abideth forever. And in Psalms 104, and I believe it's verse 5, he says, The Lord God formed the earth and laid the foundation thereof that it should not be removed Forever. All right, this is in perfect harmony with the promises that he made, and incidentally, we have no reason to hope for anything except what God has promised, because he has not made a trade of going about pursuing men, finding out what their plans are, and bringing them to pass. No, God's purpose is to bring to pass his stated purpose, and men must conform to it. Now, he told Abraham after Lot in Abraham's servants had had their falling out and Lot chose what seemed to him like the better area it says that after Lot had departed God appeared to Abram and said lift up thine eyes and look up to the heavens that's what he said didn't he no he didn't he said look eastward westward northward and southward and all the land that thou seest will I give to thee and to thy seed for an everlasting possession sounds like in the time of Abraham, he still had the same idea in his mind that he had when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth. And when he again told Noah to do the same thing, he separated Abram because he was the only one that he could find righteous. Even his family, was a, his father was an idol worshiper. So he separated him and staying right to that same uh, expressed purpose. To populate the earth with a godly seed, he chose Abram. Well, Paul testified as to the identity of that seed to whom he spoke those words. And this is in the third chapter of Galatians in verse 16. There Paul says, when God made promise to Abraham, he did not say, Seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, he says, which is Christ. So we have an everlasting promise, which is to involve Abraham and Christ. Well, now, Christadelphians look for and preach a kingdom upon this earth. And an integral part of the gospel that is preached concerning the uh, kingdom of God is the regathering of the nation of Israel and their repentance and so forth but uh, those of you who have been in my class below the hill know that we have looked at a number of passages which said the promises made to Abraham. Now, the way I stated this, it's entirely wrong. Let me back up and restate it because not one of those passages that we looked at said the promise made to Abraham was fulfilled. In the 21st chapter of Joshua, we we, we looked and we found out that uh, uh, God said, rather one of the fathers of the tribe said to Israel, he says, God has not failed to fulfill one of the promises that he made to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Everything that he promised to the fathers. Well, we teach in our uh, uh, Christadelphian Sunday school books that uh, the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But uh, this is the father of fathers of faith. There are different fathers in view in that 21st chapter. And all you have to do is back up to verse 1, and you find out that it, was, it says, "...then came near the fathers of the tribes." And if you follow it through, we will see that it concerns the division of the land. And those fathers of the tribes were called together that the correct proportion might be allotted to each of those fathers. They were fathers still living, so the the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not fulfilled in the eternal phase involving the seed as of one, which is Christ. Solomon said something in First Kings, uh, the eighth chapter, in verse 56, and said, "Everything that God promised Israel by the hand of Moses came to pass." Well, that's the problem. If I was going to point to that to show that uh, he fulfilled the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'd take my pencil and rub out Moses because he didn't say he fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you will read the history of Israel, you will see a lot of things that God told Moses was going to happen when they got into the land. In Nehemiah, the same thing is said, that to thy seed I said that I would give the land of the, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Perizzites, and there are about seven nations mentioned, and he says, You have performed your word, for you art righteous. But it only says, To thy seed. And in the 15th chapter of Galatians, God says, That to thy seed, speaking now of the seed as of many, I have given this land. Well, since we read that Abraham received none inheritance, this is at 7 and 5, received none inheritance in that land, he certainly lived in it, so the temporal living in it was not the, what was promised, but eternally he did not receive any inheritance in it. No, not so much as he set his foot on, though he promised that he would give it to him when as yet he had no seed. Well, how do we understand passages on one hand when it says all things that he promised to Israel came to pass, and then that Abraham did not receive the promises? First of all, the promise that God made to natural Israel through Abraham, it had an eternal aspect as well, but it was conditional. If we look at the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, he said, If you hearken unto my voice and keep my statutes and my commandments, then all of these blessings shall come upon you. So moving down to about verse 13, but he said, If you do not hearken to my voice, then all of these curses shall come upon you. And continuing all the way through the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, he tells them that he will scatter them among every nation under heaven. In other words, as long as you are obedient, you can possess this land until your Messiah comes to you. And then he takes the kingdom forever. And then would begin the phase that he promised to Abraham and to Christ. That was unconditional. We're told in Galatians 3 that the promise that was 400 years after the law, rather, that was 400 years after the promise could not make the promise of none effect. In other words, living in the land under that law did not change the promise. It had nothing to do with the law except that Israel would be driven out if she broke it. But that promise to Abraham and Christ eternally would be fulfilled regardless of the law and what was done under that law. And so we do look and we preach, we utter, we recognize the intent and the tidings of God when we believe that God will regather Israel as we see it happening today and our hearts thrill when we see what's happening over across the waters with them because we know that this is a fulfillment of prophecy and we're blessed in knowing what is yet to happen there. And part of that glorious blessing is that he plans to establish a kingdom upon this earth, which will bear rule over all the earth, and we have a promise that we over, if we overcome, we can sit with him in his throne as he overcame, and has sit down with his father in his throne at the time he made the the uh, address to in Revelation three twenty one, and incidentally is still sitting at the right hand of his father. Well this corresponds exactly with another promise that God made. So as we look at this, we're going to see again that God's original intent to populate the earth and finally, of course, to have an immortal, incorruptible population on this earth. It has never changed from Eden to now and into the future. It will not change because his word does not return unto him void. It accomplishes that which he pleased. Well, in the seventh chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, God sent Nathan to... David, and says, Tell him that I took you from the sheep cult, from following after the sheep, and I made you king to rule over my people Israel. And he said, You desired to build a house for my name. And another passage, he had told him, this is over in First uh, Kings, he says, You've been a man of war, and you shed blood. Therefore, you will not be the one to build a house for my name. But I tell you, I will build you a house. He says in verse 9, I believe it is, Moreover, now notice the, uh, the declared intention to regather the natural nation of Israel, Israel fleshly Israel. Moreover, I will plant, uh, rather appoint, a place for my people Israel that they may move no more. He says a little further down that he shall build a house for my name. We find over in the last nine chapters of Ezekiel a description of that house. And we find in the 11th chapter of Mark that Jesus, in driving out the money changer, declared that it was written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Yes, Jesus will build that house. It was promised to David that he would. And Zechariah assured us that he would. Because in Zechariah 6, verses 13 and 14, we read, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Behold, he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord he shall go up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord he shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both well over in 1st uh, Kings 9 and uh, also I believe it's in 2nd Chronicles I forget the exact chapter Solomon is spoken of uh, as uh, being promised that he would do these same things. Well, just as we have a uh, conditional phase of the Abrahamic promise, which was eternal in intent, but it was conditional as to where, whether it would be unbroken until the time of the uh, Messiah. In other words, what I'm saying is that the promises which mention Solomon by name were very conditional. Because David said to Solomon, Now the Lord God said to me, If Solomon will keep my statutes and my commandments, then I will do all these things, and he enumerates what God had said to him that he would do for Solomon. But he says, If he does not hearken unto my law, and he forsakes me and bows his knees to other gods, then I will rend the kingdom from him. And this happened. So therefore it was conditional but was this the promise that god made in second samuel 7 absolutely not because by inspiration we have identified for us the identity of that seed of david this is in the, uh, this was given rather on the day of pentecost and recorded in the second chapter of acts there in verse 29 the apostle peter said david being a prophet and knowing that god had sworn with an oath unto him that of the fruit of the loins, of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So we're not left to our own imaginations as to who this was. Inspiration tells us that it was Christ in fact. We all recall I'm sure when, when uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary as recorded in the first chapter of Luke when he says fear not Mary thou hast found favor with God for thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus he says further his name shall be great and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall rule over the house of Jacob and here in this verse we have the assurance of the establishment of the (coughs) the throne of David as well as the regathering of the nation of Israel. For he says, His name shall be great, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Isaiah had had something to say about that in a prophecy. Isaiah 9 and 6 said Unto us a son is born to us a child is given and it mentions several of the names of deity because uh, he certainly was a representative of God among these is the everlasting father this is seized upon to prove that Jesus was uh, a part of the trinity but it proves too much because it says he's the everlasting father and nobody trinitarian or whatever believes that he that stood upon the earth and died upon the cross was the father it was the son so Coming in his father's name is one of the declarations that Jesus made over in John, the 8th chapter in verse 20, I believe it's 24. So Isaiah says, "...of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, or that time, even forever." Upon the throne of David. So we see prophecy verifies the promise that God made to David. Finally, in Acts 13, let's take a look. Beginning with verse 21, the, uh, here Paul is giving a uh, condensed history of Israel, talking to the Jews, the various sects of them. And he said, Afterward, uh, after Saul, that is, uh, after Samuel the prophet, rather, They desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after God's own heart, who shall fulfill my will. Now, verse 23 says, Of this man's seed, that is David, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior. And as I said when I began, you can barely scratch the surface on such a subject because the entire body of the precepts which we hold would be involved, and uh, it would take many, many lectures to cover it. But I hope tonight that we have been able to vindicate the uh, method of... uh, reasoning in the scriptures which we who say we are the brethren of Christ that we do as Christ did and rightly divide the words of truth and that we do as his apostle Paul did who said to uh, Timothy that uh, you should study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. So in doing this We must rightly divide. It's one thing to read. It's another thing to understand, as it says up here. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. But with all thy getting, get understanding. Since we're told that uh, Jesus once died and that he would appear the second time without sin unto salvation, to them that look for him, then it behooves us to correctly understand the scriptures and to try the Spirit, even our own methods of uh, reasoning and understanding the scriptures, because it stands to reason if it is to those who look for him that he is going to appear the second time with sin without sin under salvation, then it behooves us to look for him and find out what the truth is concerning his return, what he's going to do when he returns, uh, what were his uh, credentials for being the true Messiah, and so forth. So I hope that we have not kept you too long tonight. I know it has been uh, very warm. I know it's very warm up here. But uh, it's a subject which was very involved, and I apologize for holding you, but perhaps it has been worth it, and we thank you very much.